0: Hi folks, welcome to the Epochs of the Lotus Eaters, where Bo and I will be discussing part two of our Henry III, I it's a very small series, uh, the rebellion of Simon de Montfort about, against Henry. Uh, so, I mean, where did we leave off last time?
1: Okay, Henry III had a very long reign because mm-hmm. he began as a small boy, a nine-year-old, and he lived to be into his fifties, uh, but he m- had made himself very unpopular over the years, primarily by just uh, having foreign favourites. Yeah. People from France, really, that he gave all sorts of high honours to. Mm. And uh, the English baronage didn't take kindly to that. Anyway, it comes to a head for various reasons, which we detailed in the last one, for all sorts of reasons, multiple layers of discontent with his rule. Um, and it all comes to a head when one of his magnates, who was his friend to begin with in his inner circle, Simon de Montfort, mm. Simon de Montfort the Younger, um, in the end leads a rebellion against him. And this story is all wrapped up with, really, our first parliaments, true parliaments. Um, so, should we just keep yeah, off with it? exactly what happened? Okay, Winston Churchill tells us that, quote, the later years of Henry III's troubled reign were momentous in their consequences for the growth of English institutions. This may perhaps be called the seed time of our parliament, uh, of our parliamentary system. Though few participants in the sewing could have foreseen the results that were eventually to be achieved. Because um, that's often the way, isn't it, uh, especially if you go back hundreds and hundreds of years, is that they could never have known what they were setting in train.
0: No.
1: I think quite often uh, some people uh, have a problem with the original founding fathers of the, Europe- the project of the European Union. Hmm. They didn't know in the 50s after World War II That it would end up with some sort of crazy open border thing going on, yeah, and a dystopian total managerial state. Right, wasn't
0: actually what they were asking for.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. So with Parliament, our story of Parliament, um, the 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 things that first sort of set it in train um, were very far removed from what we have today. They couldn't have dreamed. We said it, didn't we, all about Magna Carta. Yeah, the barons at Runnymede in twelve fifteen couldn't have dreamed. That what they were doing would lead to um, sort of freedom for most people, at least in the mm. in the Western world.
0: Yeah, because I mean, what they were really trying to do is just maintain things as they had always been. You mm. know, it was it's a conservative document, basically, mm. as it, most of English constitutional history actually is when you think about it. Mm. But they weren't they weren't trying to revolutionise something. They were just trying to preserve something they perceived to already exist.
1: So. So during Henry III's life, after particularly, and we talked about his sort of doomed deal with the Pope over mm-hmm. Sicily, that was kind of one of the last straws. Mm. Um, they became aware, if they weren't already aware, but became aware to the point where they were prepared to act on it, that he's just not good enough as, a, as an autocratic monarch. Mm. He, he's not up to the task. He's making sort of childish decisions, weird, yeah. weird decisions. Um, Uh, So, sort of, a a program for reform was set in place. Uh, A commission was set up to sort of look at government. Let's look at the nature of government. Mm. Another thing to say before we go on is that you know we're still nowhere near the modern concept of a nation-state. We we're Mm. we're nowhere near that. You know, there's there's no police. (laughs) There's no sense of um, sort of a, a national many or any real national institutions. There's the crown. And his household, and you know, uh, very little else. Yeah, the the
0: territory of England. England as a national entity does exist. Of course, and the English recognise themselves as a unique and discrete a ethnic kingdom. Group. Though, yeah, a di- right? Yeah, exactly. A specifically, dis- a, a king- kingdom. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah, a discrete ethnic group. But in that, the actual ownership of the areas of England are based are on a personal basis. That has a hierarchy of oaths and obligations that lead up to the crown and the king themselves. So it's all a personal rule and dominion rather than some sort of abstract concept of the nation itself and the nation state, as you're saying.
1: So it's only Henry III's grandfather, Henry II, hmm. that really began to sort of make a type of judiciary with a hmm. with a bureaucracy. You know, the King's Bench, the King's courts, and things. Yeah. Um, so, so you know.
0: Uh, Justice would have been a lot more localized prior to this, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. this is what a lot of people don't understand. It's like the the laws. I mean, for example, when Alfred the Great brings, you know, issues a law code, he basically just looks at what all the other kings are doing in their little realms, the small kingdoms of England, and it would have been very much similar in sort of Henry's day.
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so it's only really in this period that um, we start to have the very first types of Parliament. Mm. So Churchill goes on, the Commission for Reform uh, set about its work seriously and in 1258, its proposals were embodied in the provisions of Oxford. Now these are very, very important. Mm. Um, They're sort of up there there with Magna Carta in terms of these sort of foundational documents, foundational principles, Mm. which if you didn't have them, we wouldn't end up where we are today. Um, So these provisions of Oxford are very important, Um, supplemented and extended in 1259, the next year, by the provisions of Westminster. And and where we talked about in Magna Carta, there's no mention of Parliament. Well, in the provisions of Oxford and Westminster, there are. Mm. Uh, But still, again, to stress, not the Parliament as we know it—the House of Commons and the House of Lords and all that sort of thing—a Speaker and nothing like that really. It's not democratically elected and it's not representative. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) No, absolutely not representative. Um, the baronial movement represented something deeper than dislike of alien councillors. The, the two sets of provisions taken together represent a considerable shift of interests from the standpoint of Magna Carta. The Great Charter was mainly concerned to define various points of law, whereas the provisions of Oxford deal with the overriding question of by whose advice and through what officials royal government should be carried on. Many of the clauses of the provisions of Westminster, moreover, mark a limitation of baronial rather than of royal jurisdiction. The fruits of Henry II's work were now to be seen. The nation was growing stronger and more self-conscious and self-confident. The notable increase in judicial activity throughout the country Uh, The more frequent visits of the judges and officials, all of them dependent upon local cooperation, educated the country knights in political responsibility and administration. This process, which shaped the future of British institutions, had its first effects in the 13th century." Hmm. Um, So actually let me read another quick paragraph straight away because it just sort of leads on to it and gives us a bit more detail. The staple of the barons' demands was that the king in future should govern by a council of fifteen. So we're starting to get specific now, Yeah, it's not just, I would like this concept, this idea that we could be, no, we're going to put this in place, this number of people, and do it like this, and and so on, so it is fair, I think, to say that the reign of Henry III, the provisions of Oxford and Westminster, and the the so-called parliaments that come out of it, um, I think it is right to say that's the beginning. Of, of Parliament. Um, so, a council of fifteen, to be elected by four persons, two from the baronial and two from the royal party, it is significant that the King's proclamation accepting the arrangement in English as well as in French is the first public document to be issued in both languages since the time of William the Conqueror. So a quick word to say there is that by the time of Henry the so still another 100, 150 odd years later, that's when things are sort of only in English. Mm we sort of drop a lot of the French, but um, we, again you can see in the reign of Henry III, again very pivotal, mm. um, not as famous as John or Longshanks, but still such a very, very pivotal period. Um, so things as being, official things as being written in English, as, at least as well as French. Uh, for a spell, this council, animated and controlled by Simon de Montfort, governed, governed the land. They had each other in proper check sharing among themselves the greater executive offices and entrusting the actual administration to quote-unquote lesser men, as was then widely thought to be desirable. Uh, because they realised that they, not want, the magnates this is, mm-hmm. the baronial class, they realised that we can't let one of us become too overly powerful. Yeah. There's no point replacing the king with an all-powerful baron. Um, so they were sort of self-aware enough um, and not too vain or ambitious enough to say, you know, some of these really, really key posts, let's let let so-called lesser men hold those posts, hmm. because uh, the idea that if you're not extremely rich and landed, and, and your lineage is extremely important, you could never actually um, try and become uh, a monarch or anything like that. Yeah, you yeah. know, There's
0: no chance of a commoner like Thomas Beckett trying to become the king, basically.
1: And uh, they did that in, sort of in, in ancient medieval Chinese history all over mm. the world, in by, the Byzantine period, yeah. you know, someone that could never be could never truly rival the emperor or the king, like a eunuch say. Well I was, I was literally um, about to
0: say that explains the preponderance of eunuchs in
1: imperial bureaucracies. We can let them be an extremely powerful counsellor, because they aren't
0: 20 children, right.
1: yeah yeah. yeah. And so the barons of the 13th century realised exactly the same thing, and sort of wrote that in, hard baked that into this mm. burgeoning constitution deliberately. It's it's fairly forward thinking. Mm. I think it's pretty good. Mm. Um, the magnates, once their own class interests, class interests were guarded, and their rights, which up to a certain point were the rights of the nation, were secure, did not wish to put the levers of power in the hands of one or two of their number the idea however of a cabinet of politicians uh, chosen from the uh, from the patrician class uh, with highly trained functionaries of no political status operating under them had it uh, had in it a long vitality and many resurrections
0: yeah you can see the germination of the civil service here can't you right
1: yeah right yeah mm. so we do want to sort of sit above things and really control the the, the, the truly key things like this 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 council of fifteen and who gets to pick that council of fifteen will retain that mm. sort of the yeah. ultimate power in a way yeah but everything else will allow and should be mm. in the hands of others the vast majority of the bureaucracy mm. um we can we can sort of share that power mm. if you like um you're all right it is quite forward thinking actually mm, mm. um so we can start to talk about De Montfort himself mm. because he becomes sort of a key player because although I said about they didn't want one of their number to become overly powerful, um, unless you have lots and lots of really strict um, things in place, che- checks and balances in yeah. place to prevent it, um, someone's going to probably attempt to, to take it for themselves or, or rather events sort of force it that yeah. way.
0: Yeah, the competent man rises; the incompetent fail, and mm. so he's left holding it all.
1: Or if there's some sort of war or civil unrest or anything like that, any sort of existential threat, you kind of need one man in yep. control. Sometimes that's so it. For example, I just sprung to mind, but the American founding fathers and the Declaration of Independence and their, their Constitution. Well, immediately they had to put General Washington yep. in charge as a type of military dictator on yep. some yep. level because they just had to. Hmm. And um, it's interesting,
0: just as a quick side, the American constitution doesn't make a provision like the Romans had for a dictator. It's, no it's, you know, especially as, like you say, they had to do it almost immediately. You'd think they'd be like, okay, maybe in times of stress, you know, extreme calamity, maybe that isn't it, but it's just not there, which I think is interesting.
1: Because the Americans had to fight and win mm. by force their independence. Mm. Um, so luckily, George Washington um, was not an ambitious person mm. in that sense. Well, that was always the question he regarding was, him, wasn't it? He was very, very humble. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes after, the, after they'd won their independence, they come to him and say, perhaps you should be king. Mm. He was like Oliver Cromwell, laughed yeah. that off, of course not. Yeah. Don't be silly. Uh, no one forced him to only serve as president for two terms. Mm. He decided that would be the right thing to do. Um, he saw it as, as his duty not to dominate the nation. Mm. Uh, they're lucky. If he could have been a Sulla type, he could have been a Stalin type. Yep. They, you, the Americans got lucky with George Washington. Uh, he was a very humourless man, but nonetheless, he was sort of the right man for the job. Mm. Um, yeah, he wasn't consumed by his own vanity, should we say? Okay, so Simon de Montfort comes onto the scene. We mentioned him a bit last time, didn't we? He had been uh, put in charge of. Various portions in, uh, of land in Gascony, which was still controlled in southern France, yep. and there'd been various uprisings there, which he'd put down with a firm hand. We're told, uh, but he'd become sort of so powerful and well liked that he had his enemies at court. Hmm. They tried to take him down and failed. He'd been put on trial, but he'd been acquitted. Hmm. Um, but he'd, he, his relationship with Henry had fallen apart yeah. um, because Henry didn't, you know, completely back him up and. Um, uh, it's a fairly long and tortuous relationship between them. Um, Sir Charles Oman wrote this, the sudden outburst of wrath on the part of the Baronage in 1258 is explained not only by the fact that all men had lost patience with King Henry, uh, for that had been the case for many years, but much more by the fact that the Baronage had at last found a champion and mouthpiece in Simon de Montford, the great Earl of Leicester. Simon was not one who might have been expected to prove a wise and patriotic statesman and a good Englishman, for he had originally come into, uh, into notice as one of the king's foreign favourites. in Simon de Montfort, it's not uh-huh. English. His yeah. father was, you know, the, the great... Fr- French crusader. Yeah, he put down the, yeah. the, the, the Abigenses and things. So, so I mean, just, just saying, be careful of those foreign favourites. Well, yeah, as always, story as old as time. <laughs> um, his grandmother had been the heiress to the eldom of Leicester, uh, but she had married a Frenchman, the Count of Montfort. Uh, Their child, uh, Simon the Elder, a great crusading chief and a cruel prosecutor of heretics, he was a bitter enemy of King John, and, and had never been per- permitted to get hold of the Leicester estates. In twelve thirty-two, his son Simon the younger—this is our Simon. Yeah. Um, Simon the younger came across to England to beg King Henry to to make over to him the confiscated lands of his grandmother's Oldham. Uh, Henry could never resist a petitioner, especially when he was a foreigner. <laughs> Um, he he not only uh, took Simon into favour and granted him the earldom of Leicester, but he married him to his sister, the Princess Eleanor, and for a time made him his confidant. Uh, but the king's sudden friendship did not endure, and ere long uh, he tired of Simon and sent him over to govern Guienne, uh, which was always in a state of chronic insurrection. Simon put down rebellion with a strong hand and made himself unpopular with the Gascons. Uh, who sent many complaints to him to the king, but the fatal cause of estrangement between him and the Earl uh, was a money matter. Simon had expanded uh, expended large sums in the king's service using his own money and borrowing more. When he sent his accounts to Henry, the latter could not or would not pay, and very meanly allowed the loss to fall on Simon. Hmm. Um. So yeah, Henry the Third is not a good politician. I always, it's always an anachronism to call people from the medieval period or the ancient period politicians, but you get the point, you get what I'm saying, right? I think we would
0: established he, that last time as well.
1: Yeah, he's, he, make, he doesn't make good calls. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, you know, in all sorts of people's career in history, you make the odd bad call, sometimes right. one bad one is yeah. all it needs to bring you down. And destroy you and your, your realm or whatever. Mm. But if you just, you, you kind of always make the bad call, right? You always make the, do the silly thing. Um, okay, so Charles Oman goes on and starts to talk about how they sort of really take power away from Henry, mm. because that's the story over the next few years. Or Is what it, how options. Do, here, yeah, how you do know. you go from yeah. a king who's essentially an autocrat mm. to, uh, to, to parliament, controlling things? And Henry III, as weak as he was, um, is still not going to let that happen mm. without saying anything. He's still a Plantagenet. Yeah, still going to stand up for himself. He took his role as a king very seriously. No doubt. Um, so Charles Omer says, the Great Council, or Parliament as we may, may now call it, since that word was just coming into use, met at Oxford in June 1258 to make council for the better administration of England. Some called it the MAD Parliament because of the anger of the barons and their desire to make hasty and sweeping changes. Henry, when he met it, found that he had no supporters save his foreign kinsmen and a few personal dependents, so that he was forced to submit to all the conditions which the barons imposed upon him." So a bit like Runnymede in 1215. Mm. They caught him, obviously, I would have thought deliberately, in a calculated way, caught him at a low ebb, a low point, when they realised he didn't have the numbers Mm. That's a classic thing to the point of being cliche in politics. The timing's everything. In fact, yep. most things in life, timing's everything. Yep. Right? Um, so in 1258, they caught him in a sort of a 1215 moment where they sort of knew that their, their argument would be irresistible. Hmm. Um, yeah. Omar goes on. So were ratified the uh, provisions of Oxford. Which provided for the government of England not by the king, but by a group of committees. Henry was to do nothing without the consent of a privy council of fifteen members. See, that's that's the ball game. That's massive. Yeah. Suddenly. Yeah. a Bit like Charles the First. They're asking for everything. Yeah. They're asking for your, the very foundation of your power. Yeah. I mean, the the
0: because I mean, what they're doing is essentially saying we have veto over everything you do, and
1: well. Are you even still the king at that point,
0: right yeah, you know that's
1: that's what Charles the first said, well what king yeah. am what type of king am I then if i yeah if I don't have the final word mm. Um. Well, a bit like our monarchs today you you're a constitutional monarch, a bit like the ancient kings of German tribes, you're not an absolute
0: pat. you know you're not, mm. you're, not, you're not an Eastern despot, sorry mm. yeah right yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you're actually, not a sultan yeah actually. Things are different here. You're not the King of
1: France, you know, you've just got to deal with it. Yeah, you're not imperator with the power of life and death over everyone. Yeah. The kingdom isn't your personal possession and everyone Mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so the council was imposed upon him. Another committee of 24 was to investigate the right of all the grievances of the realm. And a third, also of 24, was to take charge of the financial side of the government and pay off the king's debts. And administer his revenues because we said that didn't we last time about him in thirds money problems. Hmm. Some people can handle money well and others can't, and he was one who really, really could
0: not. Well, I mean, he just if there's one thing we can take away from this, he's a man who lacks prudence.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) In just generally, he makes imprudent political decisions, makes imprudent financial decisions, and I don't doubt that he made imprudent decisions in his personal life.
1: Like. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, he'd rather spend his time praying, like going to Mass multiple mm. times a day instead of administering to the, the business of, of government. Yeah, I mean you could always abdicate um, and become a
0: priest if that's what you want.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one says, Henry was forced to make a solemn oath to abide by the rules stated in Magna Carta, which he had often before promised to keep, but had, but had always evaded or disregarded after a time." Mm. Um, so that's another thing that these sort of early medieval kings do, is that they would, like John I suppose, they'd swear to something when they sort of had no choice, Oh yeah. Um, and as soon as, well not as soon as always, but if it was really, really, or they calculated that it was really, really in their interest to ignore it now, they just would. I suppose that's just kind of human nature. Yeah. Um, and so, to to prevent that, they they decided they needed sort of real sort of written down in black and white, sort of real legally binding, well provisions. Exactly some some it kind it of
0: executive power over the king. Yeah, is what they
1: need. Another quick paragraph from from Churchill, sort of, sort of a bit going over the same thing, but saying a bit more about it, um, is that. This period, historians look back at this period, and they, they sort of say, like they said with John, the fact he was so bad, mm. in the long run, proved to be good. Sort of the same with Henry III. The fact that he was so weak, and things like this sort of needed to be put in place, set Britain on, although it, was wound, it wounded the kingdom in the short term, mm. actually, when you can zoom out far enough, it, it was for the best. Yeah. Um, and it put us on a completely different path to, say, France.
0: Just to point out that hardship is character building. It's true, yeah.
1: It's, it's totally absolutely true. And so we diverge from the Kingdom of France in all sorts of ways, because mm. they, they end up in sort of the 18th century, still with absolute monarchs. Oh, yeah. Like Louis Fourteenth is mm. still, uh, what well, exactly that, an absolute monarch. I still, am the state. And that, all the way up to, as I say, sort of the, at least the early 18th century.
0: Mm. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotusedus.com.